Welcome to Rethink, the future of skilled nursing, a podcast from Skilled Nursing News. I'm your host, Alex Spanko. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to personally invite you to the second annual Skilled Nursing News Summit in Chicago on June 10th, 2020. Building on the success of last year's event, we've expanded to a full-day program with cutting-edge topics, innovative speakers, and a new name, Rethink. The conference will bring industry executives to the stage in a fast-paced, dynamic format while gathering long-term care professionals for unique perspectives and intimate networking opportunities, all dedicated to the future of skilled nursing. Confirmed speakers already include George Hager, CEO of Genesis Healthcare, Owen Hammond, CEO of Cascadia Healthcare, Wendy Simpson, CEO of LTC Properties, and Mark Parkinson, CEO of the American Healthcare Association. For more information and to buy your ticket, visit skillednursingnews.com slash events. I hope to see you all there. Negative one-tenth of one percent. That's the most recent entry in a long line of distressing statistics for nursing home operators. The median operating margin of facilities across the country, according to the most recent cost comparison data from CLA. The consulting firm has been compiling an annual report about skilled nursing facilities' financial health for the last 34 years, but this is the first time that the median margin sank underwater, a fact that the report's authors described as an alarming metric. I recently spoke with one of those authors, CLA Principal Corey Rutledge, to take a deeper dive into the grim numbers and find out how operators may be able to turn those statistics around into the future. Here's our conversation. Corey, thanks so much for taking the time today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Alex. All right. Well, let's just dive right into this conversation with probably the scariest number in this report for operators in the space or people interested in investing in the space. And that's that negative operating margin. So I want to start by asking, has this ever happened before? Is this the worst that it has ever had been? And were you surprised that we're actually showing that the median nursing home is losing just a little bit of money? Yeah. So uh, I'll start by saying we've been doing this report for a number of years, 34 to be exact. And this is the first year that that uh, median operating margin has dipped below zero. I should caveat and say that for the first number of years that we did the report, we were just using our client base. So we didn't have data on all skilled nursing facilities around the country. So for the last probably three or four years, we've had a full national uh, data set. So this is the first year that we've seen it below zero. I wouldn't say that we were surprised by it. We sort of saw the writing on the wall. I mean, over the last few years, you know, it was hovering just uh, above 1% operating margin. And then in 2016, it it uh, dropped um, all the way to 0.6 and then to 0.1%. And so we sort of saw that it likely was not going to be recovering. There was nothing that we saw neither in the clients we serve nor the metrics that we look at that the operating margin is going to increase. There are a lot of industry headwinds. So to say that it would be a surprise, it really wasn't. It was something that we anticipated. We just were didn't know if it would be zero or just slightly below. Got it. And obviously, you mentioned the industry headwinds, and there's probably eight different factors that you could point to as driving this sort of dip below the water for the median operating margin. But were there any in particular that, based on your conversations with clients, based on your dives into the data, came up the most frequently or that you could say were probably the most to blame for this trend? Yeah, so I guess a couple things that come to mind that we outlined in our report. One is that, you know, different states have different Medicaid systems, obviously. And uh, what we found in our analysis is that healthcare is local and that that state Medicaid rate matters a lot. And as you go across the country and look at different Medicaid systems, none are flush with cash and, and looking to spend a whole lot more money on skilled nursing. And so that some of the pressures related to the Medicaid rates are certainly played a role in it. 
Another item that I would point to is some of the staffing challenges are, are definitely playing a role. So that turnover, as you all know, is, is very costly in the skilled nursing space. And recognizing that those pressures related to workforce are not improving, in fact, uh, likely getting worse for many operators, we anticipated that that would be one of the big headwinds that would generate the, some of the negative uh, trajectory on margins. And then the final thing I'd point to is just the proliferation of Medicare Advantage. So as Medicare Advantage expands in different parts of the country, generally they're paying you know, something less than Medicare in many instances. And there's just uh, more challenges related to revenue cycle when, when dealing with Medicare Advantage. So those are some of the items that come to mind immediately as it, rates, as it relates to uh, reasons for the decline in, in margin. Got it. Yeah, but obviously it wasn't all bad news. There were still some operators that were in the black for the year. And so what can we learn or if someone out there is listening and maybe they're struggling with the same kind of headwinds and they see their operating margins hovering around that zero mark, what are some of the, the key indicators for the buildings that were in that 75th percentile, which had an operating margin of 4.5%, which obviously isn't huge, but it is above water? Yeah. And that's, you know, that's kind of the risk in issuing some of these reports. We're looking at medians. And we're looking at a median of some, I think our population was, uh, you know, somewhere in the 12,000 facility mark of the 15,000 nationally, you run a risk of painting with a very broad brush, recognizing that there are a lot of organizations that are actually doing quite well. You know, some of the characteristics of of organizations that are doing well, as we slice and dice the data, there are, we generally find, and this is a bit of a broad brush statement in itself, but some of the multi-facility organizations that are really, have really strong regions, so they have a, a local geography that they know really, really well, strong relationships within it, those organizations tend to do better. We also see, and we outline this in the report, that there's a, a pretty strong correlation between an organization's uh, CMS five-star rating and their financial performance. So when we look at the median metrics uh, and, and sliced by five-star, we see that five-star organizations perform better than four-star organizations, four-star perform better than three, three better than two, and two better than one. Now, there's a question of, you know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Do uh, well-performing financial organizations have high-star ratings, or do high-star rating organizations have good financial performance? And I don't know that there's a, you know, a simple answer to that. I just think they build off of one another. So it's really a matter of momentum. Do you have momentum in which, you know, you're providing good outcomes for your your residents, getting good five-star ratings, getting more referrals, having higher occupancy, and that drives your financial performance? Or are you in a situation where you're sliding back in terms of your five-star rating, which can lead to fewer referrals, lower occupancy, and the like? So I can't say that one produces the other, but certainly there tends to be a relationship between the two. Yeah, that was actually, you predicted my next question, which was going to be about the sort of chicken or the egg thing. And I think it's interesting, you know, one of the sort of truisms that you hear from operators in the space, especially the good ones, always say that if you invest in quality care and you invest in your people, usually the money will follow. So I'm wondering if a little bit of that, you know, it's obviously not like the most analytical answer, but I'm wondering if a little bit of that is going on. No, yeah, I definitely think that's true. And and we've actually, you know, while it's not an analytical answer, that doesn't make it incorrect. I think it, it's important to understand the importance of CMS five-star rating. And I, I would even kind of peel that onion back a little bit and say that it's it's wildly important for organizations to understand the cost of a staffing star. 
Now, I need to be really careful when I say this because I am not suggesting that organizations should be a one-star staff facility, nor am I suggesting that they should be a five-star staff facility. I'm merely recommending that they understand the cost of the staffing star and the revenue that that gets derived from it. And so what I mean by that is that when we do a correlation between median operating margin and the staffing portion of the star rating, there's actually an inverse relationship. So one-star staffed facilities have higher operating margins than two-star, two have higher than three-star, three have higher than four-star, four have higher than five-star. But that does not mean that I'm saying that people should only be a one-star staff facility. So again, there's a happy medium in there where you're providing good outcomes, you're nailing your survey, you're getting that high quality metric and you're staffed appropriately for your building and recognizing the cost of doing so. I also think that there's a lot of power and part of why strong regional providers tend to do better than than others is that they have uh, good systems in place to monitor performance. So there's a fair amount of infrastructure built which allows those organizations to you know, serve residents and, and do really well with a different level of staffing at the bedside. Yeah, and that's an interesting point because that your you point with when you mentioned regional facilities, you're pointing to kind of another truism that has emerged in the skilled nursing space over the last half a decade or so. Is you know regional is better. You're more able to adapt to changes in the marketplace. You mentioned Medicare Advantage. That's a highly regional market on top of Medicaid, which is a highly regional payer source. Do you have any indication of, you know, around what's the right size or, you know, is there a specific, you mentioned multiple facilities, is there, is there a right size where you see more success? What is the right size for a regional operator? It's a question that I ask a lot of people and there doesn't seem to be a consensus answer. <laughs> I think there's risk at giving a very specific answer to that question because you can easily be proved wrong. You know, I think that somewhere in the 20 to 50 mark seems to be a sweet spot. But I really think it depends on on the you know the geographic density. I th- we get a lot of questions related to you know general and administrative costs within skilled nursing, and so there's really the question is what's the appropriate number to to get high quality talent to be able to afford really good you know regional oversight, and be able to deploy that into a small enough geography where it matters. So I don't know that there's a, a magic number. I'm not going to you know, pinpoint that it's 30 or 40, but I think somewhere in that 20 to 50 ballpark, we tend to see that you're large enough to be able to cover your overhead with a large number of beds or, or resident days and that you're large enough to attract the talent that you need, but also small enough where you're, like you mentioned, you're able to be nimble and react to market conditions. But I think, as I mentioned, the importance is really knowing that local market and building relationships within it. Yeah. If, if I hear one secret to success from uh, the operators that I know perform well, it's it's always about establishing those partnerships. And that's a way that you can get ahead of some of those problems, uh, You know, as you mentioned, with Medicare Advantage, which uh, was going to be my next question, you know, how obviously this is something that's not going away. Medicare Advantage penetration continues to increase. And I guess this sort of hints at what I wanted to get to in the second half of the interview is, you know, now that we know the stats and now that we see that information, what can operators do, you know, looking at this information? You know, they, they look at this and they say, OK, I know Medicare Advantage is increasing in penetration. I know they pay less money. What do I do? Why do I even still want to be in this business anymore (laughs) if this is happening to me? (laughs) So, you know, what are some conclusions around Medicare Advantage that maybe you can take away from some of the better operators? Sure. Well, first, I think it's uh, Medicare Advantage is interesting 
in that, you know, you mentioned the locality of it, and that's totally true. So, for example, you know, if you look at a state like uh, Pennsylvania, as an example, the Philadelphia marketplace has, you know, very different penetration rates than a Pittsburgh marketplace, Pittsburgh having a lot more. But even within Pittsburgh, there are some counties that it's really heavily penetrated and others much less so. So it definitely is local. And with different Medicare Advantage plans, they certainly aren't all built the same. In terms of what can be done about it, I think the, the, the general consensus that I'm hearing is that there is an importance in taking on risk. Now, obviously, and I've heard in um, or read in some of your publications, heard in your podcast, things of that nature, a lot of conversation around ISNIP, and rightfully so. It's uh, definitely the hot topic, and you know we're doing a lot of work in advising uh, skilled nursing facilities on ISNIPs. That's one answer, but it certainly isn't the only answer, and, and frankly, it probably isn't the most prevalent answer. My view is that ISNIPs aren't for everybody. They work very well for some, but not for everybody. And But regardless of the avenue that you take in order to accept risk, this concept of, of taking on that capitated risk and getting closer to that premium dollar is important. I think that skilled nursing uh, facilities have struggled to to find that premium dollar unless they're able to build their own plan. And that's, you know, why we're seeing more ISNIP, you know, activity in the marketplace. But this concept of taking on risk, both upside and downside, I think is important because unless a skilled nursing operator has that ability to really manage that that healthcare dollar and manage that resident and not just have them be a, you know, kind of a per day kind of situation, they, you know, run the risk of being commoditized. And if Medicare, and if you won't, you know, facility A won't take Medicare Advantage for X rate, well, they'll just go to facility B and get it there. So in order to prevent that commoditization of skilled nursing, I think that taking on risk in some way, shape or form is going to be necessary for skilled nursing operators in the future. Yeah, that's definitely been a trend, although it's, it's often easier said than done. Speaking of that, I, I did want to also, one of the things that I really took away from the report was this talk about it really, it, SNFs really are going to have to look at bold strategies to survive into the future. What, you know, what are some of those bold strategies beyond taking on more risk and trying to build those partnerships in their local areas? Are there any other sort of crazier ideas or bigger ideas than that? Or is it really just about the blocking and tackling of, okay, I got to pound the pavement and get these good partnerships under my belt and then then the margins will increase. Yeah, well, I don't know that there's anything crazier per se. I mean, you know, part of this, the environment in, on, on one hand is changing really fast. On the other hand, you know, things take time. So, you know, we hear about all these changes, but, you know, the government only moves so fast. Large populations only change so fast. So I think that, you know, some of the things that we've traditionally seen over the years, which I think are are still certainly valid, are things like, you know, vertical integration. I wouldn't say that it's, you know, the, the newest or... Uh, or uh, uh, strangest concept, but something that I think is is important is, you know, if uh, there's vertical integration to be done and you can do it well and you can view it as a separate enterprise and manage it appropriately, while your skilled nursing facility might not be making the margins that you would like, in some instances, you get margins from from somewhere else and you're and you're really managing that that resident. I think the overall trend that I see, Alex, is this concept of of doing more than just providing a bed and nursing services to people in your skilled nursing facility. So really, you know, taking ownership of that whole person, really focusing on population health, bending the cost curve. I think those are the concepts that that will play well. And I think that as time goes on, 
a facility's ability to take on risk, regardless of their size, will continue to increase. I mean, if you think, if you look at what you know, Seema Verma and others uh, from a federal perspective are saying, you know, they're saying that they want organizations to be able to take on risk, regardless of size. And so, while the environment today might not be, you know, flush with opportunities uh, for skilled nursing facilities, particularly small to mid-sized organizations, to take on risk, as time goes on in the future, I think those opportunities will continue to increase. Yeah, got it. And specifically looking at some of the, you know, nursing homes that are in really dire straits, you know, in the bottom 25th percentile, the median loss is 6.5%. That's obviously not great. What's the fate of these facilities moving forward? Is there a way for them to turn that around? Or are we really just going to see kind of the turnaround artists come in, the ones with the more established players and grow their footprints by taking these buildings and turning them around? Or is there a path forward for these individual buildings that are really, really in dire straits? Yeah, you know, my, my sense on that is that more often than not, these facilities are in that position, it's something that doesn't happen overnight and it won't get fixed overnight and they're in the position for a reason. And that's not a blame statement. It's some combination of the operator or perhaps the lease situation they're in, uh, perhaps the demographics of the community. I mean, there are a lot of facilities that are in that, that bucket, certainly not all, but many that are in that, that lower quartile that you referenced that just don't have the market uh, to compete or they're in an area that there's a lot of competition and they historically have never been uh, high on the list of referrals and will continue to not be. So you kind of asked, you know, is is it something that they can turn around or is it going to be a turnaround artist to do it? I think more often than not, it's going to be a turnaround artist. So the, the current economics of the facility, whether it's, you know, through a lease situation or whatever the case may be, you know, maybe the, the operator isn't as strong or doesn't have, you know, the, the horsepower, regional oversight, clinical oversight, whatever it is to, to make a mark in that environment. My sense is that it's going to have to be a turnaround artist or it's just in a demographic where the facility will continue to struggle. So I guess the short answer is more often than not, it, my view is that it is not the current operator that's going to be turning that around and, and turning that negative into a positive. All right. And um, looking forward, obviously, one of the problems with government data is, it, it you know, it does, and all this data, it is a little bit older. We're talking about 2018 data. PDPM was obviously a big shift that came into effect just this past month. So obviously, we might not even see the effects until we're able to look at full year 2020 data looking back. But what's your sort of prediction or feeling for how these numbers are going to go in the future? Have we reached a bottom at this sort of hovering right around zero just below? Or is the bottom still yet to come as the industry kind of grapples with these big, large scale payment shifts? Yeah. So I think that, well, certainly I know that operators are generally optimistic about PDPM. You know, every conference you go to and, and, you know, most of the articles you read and things of that nature, uh, there tends to be a lot of optimism, although the jury's still out. My advice to the clients that I serve is if, if PDPM ends up being a big winner for you as an organization, that's not money that should be spent right away. You know, this is intended to be budget neutral, as you know. And if it ends up being something other than budget neutral, you know, I think that the Medicare rates thereafter will adjust accordingly. So if I look into the future, I mean, I see a lot of positivity for organizations that have the clinical capacity to care for a different type of population and a more acute type of of, of resident. You know, if, if you look at the way that the market is going, we're seeing a, a downward trend in hospitalizations. 
And I think part of that, at least, it could be associated with skilled nursing facilities increasing their clinical capabilities and skilling residents in place. So as, as that world kind of comes to fruition and, and we get into a rhythm as skilled nursing providers of, of getting paid to care for more clinically complex people, I think that there are some, you know, there, there is some optimism that when we start to get paid for caring for residents like that, we can turn the tide a little bit and have uh, more positive uh, financial results for skilled nursing. So I, I have more optimism for 2019 and beyond than I see in 2018. All right, and that'll roll into my last question as we bump up to the end of the time here. You know, obviously there uh, there aren't very many positive reports about skilled nursing finances, and it's always been a it's been an industry that's been under distress for some time. But speaking of that optimism, you know, what's a stat from this report that people should take away and say, you know, what here's a good opportunity, or here's reason to believe that things are going to turn around in the next couple of years. Well, I think that, you know, the demographics are on our side and, you know, there's a lot of excitement about that. And frankly, it's not going to happen overnight. I mean, if you look at uh, baby boomers, they're, you know, turning 75 in 2021. Clearly, they're not going to be your skilled nursing residents, but there's plenty of, of demand that's that's in the marketplace. And I think as skilled nursing, you know, really kind of finds its place as as a the right solution for for frail older adults, I think that that there's plenty of reason for optimism. Things like uh, home health, I mean, there's a lot of conversation around home health and around assisted living and other alternatives. Those alternatives aren't going away, and frankly, they're they're great alternatives in some instances. But the bottom line is there are a lot of, of Americans that are getting older, that are frail, that have multiple, you know, comorbidities, chronic conditions, and in terms of longevity and caring for people with that type of, of situation, skilled nursing does very well. So the current economics of skilled nursing, you know, I don't want to paint a rosy picture and say that they're fantastic. They aren't. And in fact, the last three years, we've seen a pretty significant decline. But I, my view is that that tide is, is turning. There are a lot of really good operators, a lot of organizations that are doing really well being innovative and doing some interesting things. And I see the future is bright for those types of organizations. All right. Well, it's always good to leave them on an upbeat note. So I appreciate that. And thank you, Corey, for taking the time again and uh, for uh, sharing some insights from this report. Oh, my pleasure, Alex. Thanks so much for the opportunity. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Rethink, the future of skilled nursing. For more news and insights on the skilled nursing industry, subscribe to our daily or weekly newsletters at skillednursingnews.com. I'm Alex Banco, and this has been a production of Aging Media Network, Chicago, Illinois.